Our gracious God in heaven, we thank you for another Lord's Day, and we thank you uh, that they continue to come week after week by your design. We thank you that every single Sunday that we, your people, may gather to worship you in spirit and in truth, a reminder of our, in our worship that we rest in the final work of Christ, and that rest we enjoy forever. We pray today in the completion of this study of the incarnation of Christ uh, that you would bless our time and that you would use it to prepare our hearts for assembled worship. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this has been, of course, an abbreviated study. Uh, as I said, on the incarnation of Christ, I have used the larger catechism to guide us in this, but technically this is not a study of the larger catechism. But I think on the incarnation, I think the larger catechism does a really good job at leading us topically in this area. Now, someone might say, before we dive in in this last part, someone might say, well, now you said this was a study we were doing in Advent, uh, and so is not Advent a celebration both of Christ's first incar- of His incarnation, His first coming, but so also looking forward to His last coming? And you would be correct And so at the conclusion of this study, I'm going to read to you what the confession says in regards to Christ's second coming. But the main focus that I've I've wanted us to have in this study is of His incarnation. And I realize that some of this uh, has uh, not been new for you, but hopefully the way in which the larger catechism presents it is thought-provoking. So let's dive in here today, uh, starting with question number 46 of the larger catechism, what was the estate of Christ's humiliation? Now, again, when we're dealing with something that was written in the 1640s in England, uh, there are some times where it sounds archaic. Uh, Most of the time it doesn't. But in this case, you may wonder, well, humiliation, what, what does that mean? Because we often use, in a modern sense, that word as psychological. You know, I was so humiliated when they made fun of my Christmas sweater. You know, well, you know, that that, that may be the case, but uh, that's not what the Westminster Assembly means by this. So when, when they use the word humiliation, what they are talking about is both the humility, but so also the shame, so also the the suffering, so also the death of Christ. And so all of that is involved in that word. You may just think of it in terms of Philippians chapter 2, right? Um, Where the Apostle Paul, writing to the church of Philippi, is talking about how Christ humbled Himself, and He walks from Christ's incarnation all the way to the humility that He had to be crucified. And so that's in essence what is meant by the way the word is used here. So let's look at the answer. The estate of Christ's humiliation was that low condition wherein He for our sakes emptied Himself of His glory took upon himself the form of a servant. In his conception and birth, life, death, and after his death, until his resurrection. 
And we're going to look at each of those areas, uh, Lord willing, with the limited time that we have uh, today. And we'll start with breaking this down. The first thing that I want to draw to your attention is Christ voluntarily humbled Himself. Christ voluntarily humbled Himself. Here's what we will read. I've made a reference to Ephesians, I mean to Philippians chapter 2. Uh, now let's look at the verses. Jesus, who, though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so Jesus voluntarily humbled Himself. Now, historically, the phrase emptied Himself has been debated. And even in the early church, there were different debates about, well, now what does that mean? And that is a good translation of that Greek word uh, of, of emptying himself. And there have been various arguments over time of what that may or may not have been. And, and some of, of them have veered well into uh, heresy. But in looking at that word in context, and that's the best way to understand it, in looking at it within those verses, what does the word emptied himself mean? What does it mean that he emptied himself? Well, does it mean that he ceased to be God? Does not mean that. No, but that's been one of the more heretical arguments that's been made drawing on that word. So if it doesn't mean that God ceased to that Jesus ceased to be God, what does it mean? All right, one word for surrendered, humbled, clearly, masked his divinity, or, 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 or oh, like as in terms of a, of a mask, uh-huh, yeah, what else? Well, those are all good words, Yes. Yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I know exactly where you're going there, and I think that that is accurate. Now, theologically, I'd add a nuance. We would be very careful not to say that he emptied himself of his spirit. Um, so, but, but in your terms, so for example, it, the, for those of you that know the Shorter Catechism, Shorter Catechism, and I'm going to try to do this by memory, Shorter Catechism asks, what is God? And the Shorter Catechism says, uh, uh, God is a spirit. Infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in His being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. There you go. Um, so in that definition, we believe that God is a spirit. 
So also, when, when the, the, the Shorter Catechism asks, um, you know, how many persons are in the Godhead, that answer ends that, or it begins that, that there are three heads, three persons of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and three, these three are one God, but the keep there is the same in substance, equal in power and glory. And so with, within that theological framework of what we believe, then I think what you're saying is, is that, that God is a spirit, but in that sense there was some form of that that by taking man upon himself or humanity upon himself, uh, that that was some form of emptying. And I, and, I, and I agree with you. Now, listen, I'm not the greatest mind, uh, nor am I, the, you know, even in this moment in time. And this has been wrestled with uh, for, well, 2,000 years. But the point is, is to not get hung up on the word, but rather to see it within its context. And what it means is, in essence, that he did not relinquish his divinity, but in that sense, and again, our, uh, our, our shorter catechism also describes that in his humanity was a humility under God, but not in his divinity, right? And so he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, death even on a cross, so forth and so on. So the general idea is, is that he did this, and he did this as the second person of the Godhead voluntarily. He was not forced into it. It is something that he did voluntarily. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says that even the cross, Christ pursued with joy. Secondly, Christ humbled himself in his birth as a human being. He was not born like a baby. He was born a baby, which is, again, very difficult for us to think about in terms of God, but Scripture is crystal clear. Luke chapter 1, 31, when the angel is speaking to Mary, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. It's very straightforward that Mary did indeed, though a virgin, conceive and have a human being, a little boy within her womb, whom she delivered by natural birth and named him Jesus. Number three, Christ humbled Himself in giving up the enjoyment of riches in heaven for a life of poverty on earth. He gave up the riches of heaven, so embracing the poverty of earth. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you, by His poverty, might become rich. Now, again, Paul's using those terms in a metaphorical way, isn't he? Um, now, granted, the, the riches of heaven are riches indeed, but here what Paul is doing is he's using riches and poverty to talk about that which is of infinite value. That, that is the kingdom of heaven, and that which is true poverty for the Son of God, that is, to become man. And so the idea is that, that, that play of riches in poverty, 
also emphasizes the riches that we have inherited by virtue of Christ making Himself poor. Both, I mean, again, literally speaking, but more importantly, metaphorically speaking, taking on humanity was indeed a form of poverty. Number four, the conclusion of Christ's humiliation was His resurrection. His resurrection. Acts chapter 2, verse 24. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And we also know that one of the, one of the reasons why that Jesus was initially unidentifiable because He had resurrected in glory. And He was indeed in His glorified state in, a, in that sense, not yet ascended to heaven, but He had to reveal Himself to even His closest disciple. Larger Catechism Numbers 47. How did Christ humble Himself in His conception and birth? So we're going to break this down and look at each of these states of His humiliation and starting with His conception and His birth. Christ humbled Himself in His conception and birth in that... Being from all eternity the Son of God, in the bosom of the Father, He was pleased in the fullness of time to become the Son of Man, made of a woman of low estate, and to be born of her, with diverse circumstances of more than ordinary abasement. <laughs> All right, so again, there's somewhat archaic structuring in this answer, but let's break this down. First of all, Christ who became a man, was from eternity the Son of God. The Son of God. As we'll uh, testify in our affirmation of faith today in the worship service, we'll be using the Nicene Creed, and there's that famous expression uh, in English in the Nicene Creed that says, uh, begotten of the Father before all worlds. And it gives this, this sort of really rich language to grapple with uh, this very difficult thing to think about of the eternal nature of the Son and as the eternal Son of God. Uh, but that's what we see in the testimony of Scripture. I mean, you think about it this way. This is how John starts out his epistle, isn't it? I mean, his uh, gospel. Um, starting out in verse 1, "...in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God," so forth and so on. And by the time we get down to verse 8... John says, and the Word, that is the eternal Word, became flesh. He was born. So also dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And I'm sorry, that's not verse 8, that's verse 14. And then John goes on in verse 18 and says, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. Of course, that's the, back to what you brought up earlier, J.D., about the eternal uh, Jesus in bodily form at the Father's side. Uh, seating in the position, seated in the position of authority, and so also as 
the Son, the eternal Son. Number two, Christ in the fullness of time was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary and became man. In the fullness of time. What does that mean? What does in the fullness of time mean? When you're To come. Yeah. I've heard it explained this way, and, um, and of course it aligns with what J.D.'s saying, is um, when a woman is with child, um, and you say, uh, well, you know, so uh, if, uh, so my grandson was, was born in um, October. Is that right? October? So, I should know that, shouldn't I? Yeah. Um, but I know that my, my granddaughters were born in June and August. And so now we got October. And uh, so when he was born, uh, why could I not say, Rick Cohen was covering for me for preaching, why could I not say to, to, to Rick, I know for a fact this is the Sunday that I need you to cover for me. Well, because all of you who have had children know that this is not predictable. Um, you don't start out, uh, you, know, you know, eight to nine months later and go, you know, we've got a lot going that month. I think what we're going to do is just pick this day. This is the day he's going to come, right? And, but no, that doesn't happen. But, but as the, the woman becomes uh, farther along in her pregnancy and she is growing closer to a time in the fullness of time is that day. And you didn't know what that day was going to be, but then it came and it was, it was full. It was not any less full, right? Because the baby was born. And, and so that is a helpful way to, to think about it. And again, of course, that has all of its limits, so don't beat me up on, on the, the example. There, there are also limits to that. But if you will think about it that way in terms of God's sovereign purposes, that, that in the sense that God's sovereign purpose in Christ had this period of which there was everything pointing to it. And in the arc of history, it's moving toward this one moment in time and in the fullness of time, He was born and so and lived and died. And so it was in this period, this fullness of time, that Christ was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Number three, our Savior was born of a woman of low estate and with circumstances of shame. 
woman of, of low estate, which is just a very nice way of saying what? She was poor. She was a nobody. It's not, not like that, that everybody in the, the kingdom, you know, knew, oh, well, you know, you know Mary. You know, she, she's, she's of high esteem. And she was a nobody. She was a young woman, scholars tell us, and uh, not known and not wealthy. And yet, Luke says in chapter 2, verse 7, And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And so she gave birth in a difficult situation, in a difficult setting, at a difficult time in life. And all of this was very different from the way in which the world looks at royalty. And yet, the King of Kings was born. Larger Catechism number 48. How did Christ humble Himself in this life? Answer, Christ humbled Himself in this life, in His life, by subjecting Himself to the law, which He perfectly fulfilled, and by conflicting with the indignities of the world, temptations of Satan, and infirmities of His flesh, whether common to the nature of man or particularly accompanying that His low condition. All right, so let's break this down. First of all, Christ was born under the law. Again, that's what Galatians chapter 4 also tells us. He was born under the law. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law. What does that expression mean? What does it mean that He was born under the law? important thing, right? Because we know, Scripture tells us that Israel, although not qualified, although not worthy, although at all exceptions, God bestowed His gracious favor upon them of giving them and them alone His law. So being born a Jew, number one requirement. I interrupted you. Go ahead. And in, 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 in that fulfillment, the, the in-between point was complete and total obedience. So, so given the law, know the law, obey the law, fulfill the law. And so in, in this complete picture, it's, it's really bigger than just obedience, although obedience is key, then he fulfilled the law. He, well, that, actually, that's the next point, is Christ perfectly fulfilled the law. He perfectly fulfilled the law of God. That's exactly right. And, and again, in terms of, of both his, uh, his, his nature and his act of obedience, 
how was he or why was he able to perfectly fulfill the law? And let me rephrase that question. What was it in his nature that allowed him to perfectly fulfill the law, which we cannot do? He was not born of the sin nature, born not of the seed of Adam, but born of as Galatians, I mean as Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 says, born of the seed of a woman. And so he was born of a virgin. He did not inherit Adam's sin nature. Uh, that does not nullify his active obedience in the sense of, of perfectly following and in perfect obedience, but he did not inherit that sin nature that we have. And so he perfectly fulfilled the law. And in Romans chapter 5, verse 18, Paul says, As one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. And so one of the, the key points of his perfect obedience is that we might look to him as our perfect Savior. And again, just as we all inherited the, our sin from Adam, who in the beginning did not have a sin nature, but fell in sin, so also we look to Him who is without sin as our Savior. Number three, Christ conflicted with the indignities of the world. And I realize that word, I'm using word conflicted because that's what they use in the larger catechism. Um, but again, the, the idea is, is he, he, he fought, you might say. He fought with the indignities of the world. And that's not it. That's ignites. Ignites. That's not even a word. Yeah. So we'll start over and we'll get a D in there. In dig. I really did grow up good at spelling. I just get in a hurry. All right, so uh, what is meant by that? Well, think about it this way. So in the, the, the prophetic psalm of Psalm 22, uh, the psalmist writes, I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. And again, that, that prophetic imagery is, is that, that though Jesus was the Son of God, though He was without sin, yet He was treated in a shameful way by the world. Or in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, it says, looking to Jesus, that is, we look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider Him who endeared from, from sinners such hostility against Him, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And the writer of Hebrews is, is using language there of encouragement to us and our struggle in this life, but he draws on two important aspects of Christ's humility, and that is that he despised the shame so also that there were sinners who he endured the shame and also the hostility of sinners against him. And so what the world, you could say, threw at him, he endured and he fought against it. Number four, Christ conflicted 
with the temptations of Satan. The temptations of Satan. We think about in, in Christ, temptation. And I, I won't go through all of it, but I would, I would refer you in your notes to Matthew chapter 4, the first part of that chapter, and so also Luke chapter 4 as well. But, and again, for sake of time, I'm not going to walk through uh, all of the temptations. But in both of those recordings in the Gospels, we say they conclude with this. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And so within his life, uh, Jesus was indeed tempted. Uh, we might, might say uh, tempted personally by our ancient foe. Um, and so, and yet, continued in perfect righteousness. Number five, uh, incidentally, and I know all of you know the answer to this, but, but how did Jesus fight against the temptations of Lucifer? Word of God. And not just quoting the Word of God, which is oftentimes misunderstood. Some people will say, well, you know, we just memorize Scripture and you quote it back. Who else quoted Scripture in, that, in that, that battle? Satan also knows the Bible. And so Jesus not only, I love this as a teacher, so I'm bringing it to your attention, not only quoted Scripture, He not only fought rightly with Scripture, He knew how to interpret it and rightly apply it. He also knew the traps and the dangers of misapplying Scripture and not allowing, and incidentally you hear me say this word all the time, is to understand what the Bible means, look at the context and what was the devil doing. Taking the Bible out of context. And so, no extra charge for that, uh, but... uh, important to point out. Number five, Christ conflicted with infirmities in His flesh, either common to humanity or especially involved in His low condition. Infirmities. Let me draw out some things that they're... um, Well, we, we are almost out of time. Um, Let me draw to your attention Hebrews. uh, Look at Hebrews chapter 2 and also look at Hebrews chapter 4. Specifically in chapter 4 verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Last catechism that we're going to look at, 49. How did Christ humble Himself in His death? Christ humbled Himself in His death, and that having been betrayed by Judas, forsaken by His disciples, scorned and rejected by the world, condemned by Pilate, and tormented by His persecutors, having also conflicted with the terrors of death, and the powers of darkness felt and borne the weight of God's wrath. He laid down His life an offering for sin, enduring the painful, shameful, and cursed death of the cross. If you are ever looking 
around um, Holy Week leading up to Easter, if you were looking for a comprehensive statement of why it was necessary that Christ die on the cross, just copy and paste that. That is the most comprehensive statement that I have ever read on this topic. It is so well crafted, so drawing from all of the verses referring uh, to this in the Bible. Um, so, quickly, with the limited amount that I have, a time that I have, first of all, Christ was betrayed by Judas. He was betrayed by Judas. Christ was forsaken by His disciples forsaken by His disciples, He was scorned and rejected by the world, and He was condemned by Pilate and tormented by His persecutors. Condemned and tormented. Christ conflicted with the terrors of death and the powers of darkness and experienced the weight of God's wrath which is one of my favorite expressions in the larger catechism, the weight of it. Oftentimes, it, the, the suffering upon the cross is emphasized, and rightly so. Christ did indeed suffer, but it paled in comparison to the weight of the wrath of God. Uh, and it's number six, Christ laid down His life, an offering for sin, and then finally, Christ died a painful, shameful, cursed death upon the cross. And so that gives us a, a pretty good picture of the incarnation of Christ, uh, theologically speaking. And so as I said at the very beginning, um, so then uh, what do we believe if that is in Christ's first coming and His humiliation uh, in His incarnation? What of His second coming? And so I'm going to conclude before I pray in reading to you from chapter 33 of the Westminster Confession of Faith. God hath appointed a day wherein He will judge the world in righteousness by Jesus Christ, to whom all power and judgment is given to the Father, in which day not only the apostate angels shall be judged, but likewise all persons that have lived upon earth shall appear before the tribunal of Christ to give an account of their thoughts, words, and deeds, and to receive according to what they have done in the body, whether good or evil." Number two, the end of God's appointing this day is for the manifestation of the glory of His mercy in the eternal salvation of the elect and of His justice in the damnation of the reprobate who are wicked and disobedient. For then shall the righteous go into everlasting life and receive the fullness of joy and refreshing which shall come from the presence of the Lord. But the wicked who know not God, and obey not the gospel of Jesus Christ, shall be cast into eternal torments and be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Number three, and the last point. As Christ would have us to be certainly persuaded that there shall be a day of judgment, both to deter all men from sin and for the greater consolation of the godly in their adversity, so will He have that day unknown to men, 
that they may shake off all carnal security and be always watchful because they know not at what hour the Lord will come and may be ever prepared to say, Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious God in heaven, we do thank you that in Christ's first coming, that He did indeed humble Himself and become man. He who is of the same substance as the Father and the Holy Spirit so also took human flesh upon Himself. And we thank You for His perfect obedience under the law, His righteous life, so also His sacrificial, His atoning death for our sin. We thank You that He did not remain dead, but resurrected from the dead and has ascended to the right hand of the Father, where even in this very second He intercedes on our behalf. And O Lord Jesus, so also we pray, longing for His return, that while we do not know the day, we do know the certainty of it. And so we wait with longing, with expectation of the return of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will come in glory to judge both the living and the dead. We pray now based on these truths, so also the goodness of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that as we assemble today in worship, that you would speak to us, and so also that we would worship you, that you receive all the glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.